Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low-priced meat. So ButcherBox does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated, customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. I'm here with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick to discuss episode 13 of our series on the case of Lee Clark and Kane's story. And in this week's episode, we finally found... Charlie. It took us a long time to find him. Um, and there were many moments where we felt like we were close and then it would turn into a dead end. So I remember the day we, we finally found what we thought was where they lived and we're knocking on his door. And I think you could hear from the episode, like the excitement in our voice says that we had come that close to finding him. Because we'd had a lot of leads. It wasn't like we were searching fruitlessly we, we were we didn't know it but we kept having leads to follow and just they never went anywhere and one day we went back to I forget what we were there for we, we had some questions for Phil Story Kane's uncle and while we're there he's casually like 
Oh yeah, that the Childers. I know where you can find them. Phil is a very well connected man, by the way. <laughs> Phil knows everyone. I mean, our hunt was not easy. Susan, you were chased by a dog. You know, dog tore my dress. I was not happy. Or your that. dress. We we were cussed at. We were um, chased off of property. Like our hunt, <laughs> it was sort of a dangerous hunt, but we were not going to give up until we found him. And it was such an important part of the story. I mean, I was sort of following this through texts from Jacinda and Dan and, and, um, and we found him. We think we found him. We found him. And it was for me sitting in New York at that point, it was, it, it was very, very tense. Um, and then I was just sort of staring at my phone for hours waiting to get an update. Once you sort of found him, it was a, an amazing find and brought so much insight to the story. And the logistical struggle by itself was a, a whole whole nother episode, probably, in trying to arrange all the pieces to come together with our flights and interpreter. Yeah. And what didn't make the episode is that we thought we had a lead on where Charlie and his brother were. And we met uh, Mike Burton and his wife and they drove with us and it, it, it turned out to be a dead end. And so the day we actually found the house, we didn't have Mike with us. So it was me and Susan and Dan who first went to talk to Charlie on our own without an interpreter. Well, we weren't even sure that he was there. Like we were, we were pretty sure by that point because like people in the neighborhood have been like, Deaf Charlie, yeah, he's over there, the house with the red car. But we didn't actually know for sure until we went there and then Wayne and Charlie came out. I'm so happy that Dan was there with you so that he could get some video of this and people could, could see that because you guys did an amazing job telling this story. And some of it you just can't sort of digest unless you can see it. Yeah. And Charlie can't speak for himself, not truly, in a podcast format, obviously. So being able to see him and see how he interacts with us, to me, is a critical part of it. Just to see his confidence and his answers and to know that, like, this is what Charlie is, in fact, saying. Yeah. I mean, I was hoping this would happen, but someone who has watched the videos that we have posted on YouTube of of Dan's videos wrote in who is a, she is a certified ASL interpreter and also has completed training as a communications assessor. And she watched the videos and basically what she said was that Burton's interpretation was spot on, which just kind of confirmed in my head that Charlie said what we, we think he said. One of the moments that stood out for me, just as a quick aside going back was when I learned on one of these calls to give me the progress from Georgia, that Jacinda knows sign language. And I was like, what? I mean, I've known her for 20 years and I had no idea that she, that she knew sign language. And I was like, well, oh. let's be clear. I don't know sign yeah, language. Right. I, know, know, I know the alphabet. <laughs> I know the alphabet and a few signs. Yeah, but it still it still took me back. I was I was, I was taken aback a little bit, but um, which did come in handy. We it did. We told Charlie our names and, you know, we were able to give, you know, proper hellos. And so I, I think it did help a little bit. So we call him Charlie in the episode. But one thing we learned when we did talk to him is that he has changed his name in the year since. So he, ha he has a, a name sign that he used for himself that meant Charlie. But he uses a new one now, which would probably be better interpreted as Charles. Yeah, I think he told Mike, like, I'm not Charlie anymore. I'm Charles. And he changed the sign just a little bit. Yeah. 
But so the first day when we talked to them, we didn't, we went in, they were there, they talked to us. We didn't have an interpreter, but we wanted to find out what we could because we didn't know for sure if we would be able to have an interpreter with us. We didn't know for sure that they'd still be there when we went back the next day. So we wanted to learn everything we could. And in hindsight, it's clear just how dangerous that thinking was. I'm glad we spoke to him. I'm glad we tried to learn what we could. But the risk of confusing ourselves and Charlie was so high. And even as careful as we were being, we almost screwed it up, really. Yeah, I mean, we got it all wrong, basically. I mean, we we thought he was talking about the Brian bullying case. Like we were like, wait, what was someone else in the room? Did Char was Charlie in the room and no one wanted to say that? Like we misinterpreted everything he was saying to us. What we knew about the case, we were reading into what he was trying to communicate with us. And Charlie was so vivid in his reenactments of this. Like the way he was like he would have Jacinda be the one with the gun and he would reenact telling her and by her we now know it was Ronnie Quarles saying, no, 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 put the gun down. Don't play with the gun. No, 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 no. Which to us, we felt like, does that mean Charlie was actually in the room? Like, how come no one has ever said that? Kane has never said that. You know, no one in the bowling family has said that. This doesn't make sense. We've got this whole thing wrong. And Kevin, I think we even called you after that. And we we're like, he told us a story that we don't understand. One of the most amazing things about all of this is that you find out that there are two shootings. Right. There are two different incidents which just floored me, as I know that it floored you guys. And it just becomes this stunning moment. And you're like, oh my God, this this is even more crazy and confusing than I possibly could have imagined. I mean, what are the odds of that? He's talking about one and not the other. And it's just um, and you can sort of hear it in your voices when that sort of light goes off in your head. It's like, oh my gosh. And it's not just two shootings, and the similarities between them are kind of astounding. Almost the same place, like like the Childers and the Bowlings live very close together in the same little section of Silver Creek. Um, they both involve teenage boys sitting on a bed when a gun goes off and shoots one in the head. I mean, they're, it's understandable that how Charlie could have gotten these two cases mixed up and add the trauma that it caused him on top of it. And you can see why his memory is so entangled between these two stories here. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like of the two shootings, why do you guys want to know about the bowling one? I have nothing to do with that one. I didn't see that one. I wasn't in the room with that one. Like if someone came to talk to him about one of these shootings, he's going to go with the Quarles one. It was very hard to focus him on Brian Bowling's death because he just kept being like, uh, I don't know anything about that. Why are you asking about that? Let me talk to you about what happened to Ronnie Quarles. And the Ronnie Quarles one is clearly the one that traumatized him. Mm-hmm clearly the one that had this amazing impact on him and he was right there yeah or we certainly wouldn't have realized while we were talking to charlie that there were these two shootings if it hadn't been for his brother wayne who stepped in and explained what was going on and i remember thinking when it happened we knew from our first conversation with charlie that wayne didn't like charlie talking to us he was trying to get charlie to be quiet he kept trying to interrupt us so for a moment, I remember thinking that Wayne had this crazy story he was using to try and get Charlie to stop talking to us. But he was insistent. He was like, no, guys, listen to him. He's not he's saying the name Brian, but he's not talking about Brian Bowling. Yeah, that was kind of amazing. We were like, Wayne, what? What are you talking about? Is this right? Is this true? And even Mike Burton was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and Wayne forgot the name of this guy, too. He remember the name Greg Coral. And Greg was the name of Ronnie's brother, so he was kind of close. But 
the story we heard that day from both Wayne and Charlie turned out not to actually totally match up with what we would later learn about it. But what I also discovered is that once we started talking about the actual Brian Bowling shooting, Wayne got pretty chatty. Wayne was not terribly concerned about talking to me about what happened at the Bowling's trailer. And he was trying to tell us how we could get Charlie to tell us what really happened that night at the bowling trailer. He suggested things like, just tell him he'll be in a lot of trouble if he doesn't come clean right away. Basically telling me I should threaten Charlie to get him to tell me what happened, which we did not follow that suggestion, obviously. Um, but it was he who like eventually said, like, guys, go to the bowling trailer. You're never going to know anything unless you do that. As soon as Wayne said that and we asked Charlie if he'd be willing to come with us, we packed up and left. Within seconds, we were packed up in the car. It was me and you, Susan, and Mike and Charlie and Dan. And we went over there immediately. Wayne did not want to come with us. And I don't yeah. think he was invited. <laughs> we would have let him come if he yeah. wanted to. But um, yeah, I mean, that is the only way I think that we were able to unravel the two stories. And even then, so it was hard to go back and like listen to some of that audio because I just feel like the biggest dummy because Charlie is sitting there. He's like very clear. He's communicating exactly what happened in this event, like explaining details about what went on and who lived where and who was what. And we're so hung up on the names. We're trying to like argue with him. And Charlie like didn't bend. Like luckily, like he knew what he knew and he kept saying that. Whereas we're like trying to convince him to change his mind, which is dangerous because he he keeps saying Brian and it took us a while to finally click that like, okay, he's saying Brian. He does not mean Brian Bowling. Yeah. I mean, we, we're still not unclear like where Ricky came from or Ricky's brother. Yeah. We we still don't know why he thinks Brian Bowling was Ricky's brother. He knows who Brian Bowling was. He started crying when we showed him a photo of Brian. He was very sad about his death. But when he signs for, for Brian Bowling, he signs Ricky's brother. But he is clear. I mean, he's adamant that there's two separate things. There's what's happened at his house and there's what happened in the trailer. And he is able to separate those two events and talk about them, you know, as two separate events in terms of what he remembers happening in each place. And he is very certain that he never saw anyone running through the bowling's front yard. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers. Local papers all over the country try and track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things. And that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Hey, 
Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like, like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. I mean, Kevin, when we called you, I actually, I think the first week we pulled over one time to call you to tell you we had been <laughs> when we were outside the jail by accident. And we uh, unfortunately pulled over to call you outside of the jail and a cop came up to our car. <laughs> but um, well, I've got Dan's big camera there rolling. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, of course, my instinct was like, should I, should I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> should, we, should we drive away? I'm like, no, don't. I, this, like, I had these dudes of happiness. Hazard scenario going on in my mind where I was going to cross the Alabama border. You said that like just said to know, just wait for him to come talk to us. Oh, and Kevin, you were just like, uh, what's happening? He was like, I'll bail out Susan and no one else. The rest of y'all are all on your own. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, you I've only known for a little while. Those two I've known for a long time and they could use a night in jail. <laughs> I mean, but I just, I wonder, Kevin, like when we're calling you about like, you know, there's two murders and Charlie was at both and, you know, he's telling us he didn't see anyone. Like, you know, the story, you know, what we've been working on, like how hard was that for you to believe? Yeah, it was extraordinary because it took a sort of turn that obviously none of us were expecting, but it just kept getting, you know, the story is every time you sort of you think you've got a, a beat on something, it just gets stranger and more bizarre and there's another person involved. And so for there to be another shooting that's so similar, it was just completely perplexing. And, and then and then it got even weirder when we finally find out what this other shooting was and realize that the person who killed the other boy was Charlie himself, or at least that's what the official story is. Yeah, every step of the way, over that period when you guys were calling me, it just became stranger and stranger. And of course, this is all happening so rapidly for you and you're changing course. And I'm like trying to keep up with this in bits and pieces. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm here in New York kind of going, oh my God, and pacing. And then I don't have all the information. I'm wondering what you guys are doing, you know, and then I start to get a little concerned about like your safety because it's such a such an intense story and and it's very confusing. Um, it was, you know, it, this episode is one of the most sort of extraordinary things that I've ever, you know, been a part of. And you guys are the ones who put it together. But I don't think any of us saw this turn coming and how sort of 
perplexing and unbelievable would make all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, a lot of people have written in about this episode with questions, but I think the biggest question out there, Susan, is does it matter? Will what we found out from Charlie make a difference? In terms of Lee and Kane's uh, legal prospects, I think yes. Although I got to say, I'm kind of glad I'm not an attorney working on this case because this is not a typical fact pattern and there's no like easy answer about how this would be used in a legal proceeding. I'm not sure what sort of vehicle you'd even use. Like, I do believe it's legally significant, but um, it'll be interesting to see how exactly it'd be used in court. Well, Susan, um, let, me, let me ask you this, because with Angela Bruce, you were saying that simply because she's recanting her statement doesn't mean anything to the court because she's already given a statement under oath. Yes, but, but with, Charlie with, is not recanting. That's Char right. Charlie never said this. Right. It would seem to, and I mean, you're the lawyer, but it would seem to open the door to say that nobody even understood his statement. There's a, a few ways it could possibly go, and I'm not sure what the best way of presenting it would be. But yeah, this is not like Angela Bruce. It's not a recanting witness. It's not someone saying, well, I was lying before, but I'm telling the truth now. It's someone who is saying, I was always telling the truth, and no one was able to hear me. And people who didn't understand me were, f were testifying wrongly under oath about what they believed I said, but what I hadn't said. Um, because again, like Charlie's story should actually have never been heard by the jury, because it really only comes in through Dallas battle and his testimony of what Charlie told him. Because Charlie himself, it was such a, a mess on the stand that it, you never would have gotten the story from him alone. It's only because battle was wrongly allowed to give a hearsay testimony about what he believed Charlie said that the whole story of Lee running by was ever even introduced. Right. And, and Charlie was pretty consistent on the stand um, from reading the trial transcript where he says over and over, only story, only story, just story, only story. So, And there's another important point that happened at trial. It didn't make the episode, but um, it's, it has to do with the, the lineup because Charlie was, Charlie allegedly was given a lineup of six pictures of boys slash men. And he supposedly drew a circle around the picture of Lee Clark and said, that's who I saw running through the yard. Um, but at trial, he denies that he ever circled anyone on the lineup. And what's more, when the prosecutor shows him the lineup and asks who the photo that is circled is of, he says, story, number two, photo number two is story. And you can see the prosecutor double take. And he's like, uh, what? And then he repeats it. Charlie says again, like, oh, yeah, photo two is Kane's story. He says story. But. At that point, the prosecutor like ends his questioning. He's like, okay, I'm sitting down now because this is not going where I wanted it to. And that's something that actually happened again when we spoke to him. We showed him a photo of Kane, and he said, that's story. And then we showed him a photo of Lee Clark, and he says, that's also story. Yeah, and we showed him the same lineup photo, uncircled. We had photoshopped it so the circle was no longer there. And he picked out two photos. The first one was not photo number two. I, I believe this was when we were without Mike Burton. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, correct. Um, so we have no idea what what he thought we were asking him to circle. But yeah, it definitely was not um, Lee. He seems to have no idea that Lee Clark exists. We tried every way we could. And he's like, I, I don't, I'm not aware of this Lee Clark. I'm not aware of this, this other guy in jail. I'm aware Story is in jail for this. <laughs> it's also worth noting, though, this lineup is the same one that was shown to Angela Bruce. 
Um, and she also picked out a photo of Lee Clark and we asked her about it. She's like, well, yeah, every other photo is a guy who's like in his 40s. So it's not hard to figure out which is the one the cops wanted us to pick. And she's right. Like the other other guys in the lineup are like obviously not teenagers. The other thing is when we asked Wayne whether or not he thought Charlie saw someone, he had doubts himself. He said, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't even know. I forget what I asked him, but I, you know, mentioned the fact that Charlie's testimony was about seeing someone run outside the Bowling's trailer. And his response was, that's what he claims he saw. Full on skeptical from the beginning. He's like, I mean, I can't say if he did or not, but I certainly don't think he could have. Yeah. And Wayne also said that the story didn't come from him in the first place. Battle's testimony on the stand about how Wayne called him and said Charlie saw something come out and talk to him. Um, that didn't happen as far as Wayne remembers. He's very confident that it was the other way around, that Dallas Battle called him and said, I want to talk to Charlie. And he's like, okay, we'll come out here. Um, I mean, the other heartbreaking thing about this episode to me is when we tracked down uh, Ronnie's mom um, and she was saying how she doesn't know what happened that day in the room with her son and Charlie and Wayne and the other boy. But what she really believes is that Charlie loved Ronnie and she did not want to prosecute no matter, you know, regardless of what may have happened in there. And all these years later, I mean, she still doesn't have all the answers. And yeah, yeah, that that to me, it was it was a particularly tough and uh, sad interview. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know about this, the shooting that when Ronnie Quarles was killed. Um, what we have is a news report about the coroner's inquest where there's supposedly testimony from Charlie where he admits to shooting Ronnie about an accident. But I think, Kevin, you had the same reaction I did when you you heard about it. You're like, there's no way that Charlie Childers gave this testimony. And I frankly just do not find it plausible that what's written in that article was really testimony that Charlie gave. He has such a difficult time communicating it strikes me as odd that he would be able to put together those statements. And one thing Charlie kept telling us again and again, and it's hard to be sure what he was referring to, whether it was about Ronnie Quarles or Brian Bowling, but he said there was no interpreter present. We just wrote things back and forth. And he may have been talking about Dallas Battle, asking him about Brian Bowling, but he may have also been talking about this coroner's inquest in 1976, um, where he supposedly confessed to shooting Ronnie Quarles. But... I don't know, Jacinda, what was your take? Because like I walked away, it never occurred to me that Charlie could have been the person responsible for the shooting. And I just... Well, I was the opposite, actually. Um, because of the way Charlie reenacted him taking his hand and saying, no, no, no. To me, it seems like the gun could have gone off by accident or whatever at that moment. So finding that out didn't seem that different from what he was saying. Although he told Mike... I wasn't there. I don't know. I was in a different room. But what he was reenacting with us was putting someone's hand down. Was that him putting, you know, Ronnie's hand down or was it someone else in the room putting Ronnie's hand down? And that's what he was told. I don't know. What he describes, though, is that he says that, like, they asked me if I did it. I said, no, I didn't. And they said, it's okay. To me, I don't think Charlie knows to this day that he was officially the person responsible for killing Ronnie. He did tell us a story about going to school afterwards and telling a teacher about it. And he said, and she hugged me and I cried. You know, it was clearly, clearly traumatic for him and and something he still thinks about to this day. It also marks the end of Charlie's life 
of being in a community that can understand him because it was very shortly after this that his mother decided he would be taken out of the deaf community and he was effectively isolated for what has been the next 45 years of his life. I mean, that shooting completely altered the course of his life. Mm -hmm. And then here he finds himself in the center of another one. So, uh, so we have some questions this week. The first is from KC at K sizzle on Twitter. They write, just listen to episode 13. Curious if you all ever thought of showing Charlie pictures of individuals to definitively sort out the stories. Y yes, we tried. Um, unfortunately, it has the same limitations that using names does with Charlie and that his identifications aren't always enlightening. <laughs> like with him being shown a photo of Lee Clark and saying that's Kane's story. Um, we also have a question from Jane Trujella. She writes... Heart just a bit broken after listening to the latest proof pod. Years of being misunderstood for Charlie and the resulting miscarriage of justice are so sad. But who interpreted for Charlie on the other case? Again, we don't actually know if there was even an interpreter there. If you go by what Charlie seems to be telling us, and again, it's hard to know what he's referring to the bowling case or to the, the Quarles case. He kept saying over and over again, there was no interpreter. I just wrote down on a piece of paper. They wrote questions and answers back and forth. So there may not have been an interpreter at all. I don't believe it was Mike Burton because Mike Burton seemed to have no idea about this other shooting. But if there was an interpreter, we're not sure at this point who it would have been. We have a question from Roxanne Padgett on Facebook. She writes, I'm guessing that nobody's hands were tested for gunpowder residue on the shooting that happened at the Chiller's house. I'm going to guess that's the case too, but without the files, uh, it's hard to say. I'm actually not even certain how common GSR testing would have been in the 70s. You know, we don't know a lot of the details about the Quarles case. Um, we only know what we learned from Charlie and Wayne and from um, Mrs. Quarles herself. You know, it'd be great to, to look at those files and, and see for sure. But at this time, we, we just don't have a lot more information. Yeah. If anyone is interested, we have posted a few videos of our interview with Charlie on our YouTube channel. And you can check those out. Um, our YouTube channel is called Proof Crime Pod. And you can join Kevin Jacinda and laughing at me as I run across the bowling's front yard. Yeah, for, for nothing else, everyone should watch just <laughs> to see a very pregnant Susan run across. Waddle. <laughs> she, was, she was committed. The story was told clearly. Um, and it's really worth taking a look at them because I mean, part of the reason that we brought Dan the cameraman on some of these shoots is for moments like this, where we can really sort of illustrate to people things that aren't always apparent when listening to the podcast. It's pretty amazing. What's coming up on the next show? Next week, we get some answers finally about what really happened with the autopsy on Brian Bowling. Thanks for listening to this episode of Proof Sidebar. If you have any questions for future sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can find me on Twitter at the View from LL2 and on Instagram at SOO Simp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too at Jacinda Proof. <laughs> <laughs>